Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The show dedicated to telling obscure, interesting uh, and generally amazing conservation stories. I'm your host Jack Baker and on today's show I'm going to be joined by Lisa Bass, the Director of Programs and Operations for Seed Madagascar. She's here to tell us all about Madagascar, Seed's work within the country and the ongoing food crisis which they are currently responding to. Now, before we get to that, I thought it was worth taking a moment to say that while this may not sound like conservation uh, necessarily, we do talk a lot about climate change, as that is the issue which seems to underlie a lot of the, the problems that SEED are, are there to tackle, including the, the food crisis. And I think this is important because if we look at the world as kind of this holistic thing, while we might like to focus on animals or um, lemurs, if you're thinking about Madagascar specifically, there is so much more to every environment than just the, the non-human elements. These things do come back and they do uh, affect other people. And whether you need the extra push to do good um, or whether you just want to know there's an extra bonus to you helping animals, I think this conversation really helps to... Yeah, adds another layer of depth to conservation. Uh, it certainly did for me. It was really, really interesting. I really enjoyed talking to Lisa and I, I can't wait for you all to listen. That being said, there is also conservation chat. So if you are um, a little worried that it is out of your comfort zone, do not worry. There is a lot of chat about the conservation of lemurs and the conservation of bats. Really, really interesting stuff. So yeah, I really, really hope you, you enjoy the episode. Before we get into that, I will say, of course, that this whole thing uh, is in response to a food crisis um, and that food crisis will not end anytime soon. So if you're looking at this episode on launch day or 10 days down the line or 100 days down the line or a year down the line, this crisis might still be going on, probably is still going on, or at least similar crises will be going on. So please go to the description of this episode. You'll be able to find a link which will take you to the donation page for Seed Madagascar. You can follow that and donate what you can to, to help the people um, and Seed do its work there. It's incredible, amazing work. You can also follow all of their social media down there to keep up to date with uh, updates on their work. So really worth going down into that description, having a look, seeing what's there, having a, a, a follow of all of that online as well. And while you're on all the social media platforms, you can have a look at our content as well, at Pangolin Podcast on them all. But I guess I I have babbled on for long enough. This episode is is really special, really, really interesting. And I can't thank Lisa enough for her time. So I, I really hope you all enjoy it. And I will be back at the end of the show to say another massive thank you to Lisa and also to wrap up. But uh, for now, I really, really hope you enjoy today's interview with the amazing Lisa Bass. Welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Lisa Bass, the Director of Programs and Operations for Seed Madagascar. She is here to talk to us about Madagascar, Seed's work within the country and the ongoing food crisis, which they are currently responding to. So thank you very much for, for joining me today, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Nice to meet you. 
Thank you. And yes, very nice to meet you too. And for the audience to meet you, I guess, um, could you introduce yourself to them? Tell them a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name's Lisa and I'm the Director of Programmes and Operations for quite a small charity called Seed Madagascar. And Seed Madagascar is really based in the far southeast corner of Madagascar. And we do a lot of conservation work down there, but also we work with communities on um, community health, education infrastructure and livelihoods as well. Mm. It's really, really interesting. When I was looking at the charity, the, the number of kind of diverse things that you do for what you've said yourself, a small charity, is, is really, really interesting. And um, we'll get to to those programmes a little bit later on. Uh, I guess you've introduced yourself and Seed Madagascar a little bit there. The other important character in the story is, of course, Madagascar itself, which a lot of people, I think, know about. Uh, they know the country, they know about lemurs, they know about kind of this fantastic green place, but beyond that, they don't really know much. And when I was doing my research, it's incredible the kind of the diversity, the number of endemic species, the things that are kind of unique to this place. I wondered if you could tell us um, what kind of initially attracted you to, to working in Madagascar and what are some of your favourite memories and moments that you've had working working with that region? Um, God, that, that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't is, know where to start. A big one to start off with. Uh, just tell us your whole life story and why you love where you work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Um, and, and maybe that that's kind of where it all started with with sort of being really, really young and, you know, growing up and, and having a love for sort of nature and conservation. I can remember going for walks, you know, well, like 40, 50 years ago now with with my grandfather and him pointing out all the plants in the hedgerows and all the flowers. You know, I can remember getting a couple of school prizes at school and it was always about animals. And, you know, I've always had guinea pigs when I've been growing up because that's the, my other passion in life is, is guinea pigs. Um, and, I, you know, I, I even wanted to be a vet and like volunteered at a vet when I was younger. But then, you know, as, as I went through sixth form and sort of understood that maybe physics and chemistry weren't quite my forte and I was probably never going to be a vet, I started to get more into the people side of it and, and in the end went off to read um, sociology at university. But I've always really had this, this kind of passion and, and curiosity about conservation and animals. And I can remember that, you know, the very first travel book I ever read was Dervla Murphy's um, Muddling Through Madagascar. And it, you know, although she's obviously a bit of a character, um, you know, she painted this picture of this enormous country that, that you would just, it, it, there was so much wildlife, but there was also so much expanse of countryside and, and it was always somewhere then right from the age of about 18 that I always really wanted to go but then sort of life got in the way and you know as I say I read um, sociology I went off to work with people with learning disabilities then I worked for the Red Cross managing community health services um, got into emergency response and then when I was sort of mid-30s when I was about 36 suddenly sort of everything converged and I had this opportunity to, to go and do something for three months. And, you know, when you're faced with that kind of decision and you've got the whole world, but you know this is your one opportunity where you are going to be able to take three months out and go and do anything you wanted. When I started to really sit down and think about what I wanted, 
you know, I, I sort of returned to this idea about Madagascar being this this very unknown place. I didn't know anything about it, but it, it always had that sense of adventure. And it kind of came down to two places, really. I was either going to go and trek across Mongolia on a horse for, for three months, because I also really like horses, or I could go and volunteer for this, this charity in Madagascar for three months. And, and when I thought about it, I thought, you know, for, you know, by that stage, it was, it was kind of like I don't know, 20 years ago that I'd read this muddling through Madagascar. And, and I just thought, no matter what else I do, if I don't go to Madagascar, I will always regret it. So I went off to Madagascar for three months to volunteer for the charity. And, and part of the three months I was doing sort of school building. But the, but the other half, I was looking at, you know, the forests, the wildlife, um, looking at helping out with, with the research team. And I did that and, and I really got involved as well with, with some policies, which is eventually kind of what I came back to do with the charity. So from going from these three months um, to living in Madagascar and absolutely loving it, I came back to the UK, I worked out my three months notice with the Red Cross and I got on a plane back. Um, and that was 2008 and, and I've been there ever since. And I think, you know, the, the, the pull of Madagascar is this idea of we don't really know anything about it, but, you know, we've all grown up on it. We've all seen those programmes, you know, with, with David Attenborough, who has been, you know, walking through those forests and talking about these, you know, magical lemurs. And, and that's kind of been our bread and butter, really. And I think I'm just so lucky that I got the opportunity to go and experience it and then I was lucky enough to be able to say okay I'm actually going to make that my life and originally I went back for, for just a year um, but as I say I've been there for, for 13 years and, and Madagascar still has the same pull on me now as it did all those those years ago in fact for various reasons much much more now but I think you know originally it was that idea about this country that was steeped in in mystery but that we all we all kind of have heard of a little bit mm -hmm. um and that that's originally what sort of made me go to madagascar but as you say madagascar is it it, it is unknown you know, when when I told people that I was going to Madagascar, you know, no one really knew where it was. No one could point to it on the map. Um, when the Madagascar film started coming out, as well, <laughs> you know, people would say to me, is that a real place? Then? I, I thought it was just a film. So you've got, you know, the, the, the people know all this stuff, but no one really knows anything about Madagascar. So, you know, even now I, I'm still asked by people about you know the size of Madagascar because I think it's dwarfed by mainland Africa so everyone thinks oh it's this tiny little hot you know I don't know holiday destination but it's it's you know it's one and a half times the UK it, it's bigger than France <laughs> it's huge and you know the the infrastructure means that it can take 
days and days and days to travel anywhere because you're you're going on these you know particularly where we work down in the southeast you know there's there's no paved roads it, it's sandy tracks so you know even going to the capital is like you know a two day and night sort of taxi brush journey non-stop and, and and that's if you know all the bridges are up and there's no floods and blah 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 so you know a huge huge island with all of this you know as you say endemism i think it's got like 83 percent of its species are, are just endemic to madagascar which is like amazing but as well the other side of that is that it's so poor that and that's the side of things that you don't hear about you know how how people in madagascar are struggling every single day because it's so poor and you know, in, in some of the, you know, the indices of the world that you, you read about, you know, it, it's arguably the poorest place on the planet. And yet no one knows. It's, it's never, ever reported on. So you have this kind of inaccessibility to healthcare. You have inaccessibility to, to education. You have, you know, so many people. I think it's 70 percent of the population live below the international poverty line. And it's just not talked about anywhere in the world. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a strange old place that it's you know huge levels of, of conservation interest, biodiversity interest, but but really the challenges Madagascar faces are absolutely huge. Mm-hmm. That's there's so much there that I want to kind of talk. Like, so much, I'm so like there's so many questions buzzing around in my head because you touched on things I've been thinking as well about this kind of going back a little bit before we get to that. Go back to the start of when you were kind of talking about your choice to kind of go there. There was this. I've been thinking a lot recently about this butterfly effect of what if you'd picked Mongolia? What if you'd picked how different your life would be? So it's interesting to hear just how this one choice has now made landed you where you are now in this fantastic place where as you say there is such diversity and yes the kind of contrast between this beauty and majesty and not knowing about the animals and the wildlife but also people not knowing about this this whole mystery there the people not knowing about the struggles that the people who actually live there go through it's it's really it's interesting it's kind of no, it's upsetting. It's strange. It's something that you, I, I'm glad we're talking about because we can turn, maybe hopefully turn people's focus a little bit towards it so that it gets some more attention. And yes, I guess what you were saying about the mystery, I was looking it up because I was doing my research before this and the number of endemic species are the thousands and thousands of plants and animals. It's just incredible. Um, mm. and bizarre. It, it's- I I had to laugh when you brought up Madagascar that was probably my first introduction to the film because it came I remember going as one of my birthday parties when I was very young to the cinema to see it um and that's kind of I don't know whether that's what effect, I feel like I was already hooked on animals by that point and that just kind of pushed me over the edge to loving it more um I think my brain is still programmed every time I see a ring-tailed lemur to sing I don't know. I, I'm not sure how the copyright laws work, but I, I feel like people will know the song. I'll get it stuck yes. in everything. My brain is still programmed. So it's like this um, amazing, interesting place that, yes, uh, so many things there that we want to talk about and all these ideas swirling around. 
so yes, that was uh, that was really really interesting. Um, and you've kind of given a really nice introduction to the place and um, the issues that that it faces. And I I wondered, Seed is an organisation that kind of bridges the gap between these two worlds. This kind of mystery between not knowing about people and not knowing about animals. And I wondered what the relationship is there with between those two spheres. Almost is there. Is it a close relationship? Do people who live there know a lot about the nature or are they kind of detached from it? What's the kind of situation there? Yeah, it, it's um, it's strange, actually. When just just you asked that question, I, I wrote down the word because and I wrote down the word no, because I, I don't think people know in an academic sense a lot about the environment sort of around them. I think they know a lot in a very, very practical way because I think nature and human is, is just so intertwined in Madagascar in a way that I think we've really lost probably in the places where we've all grown up. Certainly, you know, I have in the UK, you know, e even in terms of our food, you know, I, I'm very aware of where my food comes from, but I know, you know, other people, even, you know, people in my family and my friendship group, they don't. So, you know, you, you walk into a big supermarket and you walk down, you know, maybe the, the meat counter rows and you see all these joints of meat in, in sort of packages. And, and really, you've no idea where that comes from or, you know, which part of the cow or the pig it is. Whereas when I go to the market, you know, I see the whole carcass of the cow. You know, if you want a piece of meat, the butcher will chop it off for you. So you're always very, very aware of this interconnection between the animal world and the human world. And I think for people in Madagascar, that integration has just never been broken. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the in the villages where we work, I would say probably about 90 percent of, of people are either subsistence farmers or subsistence fishers. So they have this interconnection with the land or the oceans that I think we we lost a long, long time ago. So it's it's although it's very together what there isn't a sense of i think you know a, a lot of the time because how poor the country is you know there's certainly not the the kind of academic knowledge of how special madagascar is because we know that from you know going through sort of school, going off to study at university, we look at the internet, we watch TV programmes, and that just isn't available to people in, in those rural areas. So there's not that academic tradition of understanding, but there's also, you know, the, this, it's so isolated there. As we were saying, you know, to get up to the capital, I can remember you know, going off on a taxi, Bruce, up to the capital, and it was literally 50 hours nonstop. And that that was good because the roads were passable. So, you know, for, for people to go outside of their villages, even to the capital, but, but even to some of the, the sort of smaller market towns, it, it's, it's just not really what you do when you're subsistence farming or fishing, because obviously you have to do your work that day to get food on the table. Mm -hmm. So there's also not this um, realisation that, you know, the lemurs that you see in your forest, actually you go 100 kilometres at the road and those lemurs are no longer there, let alone that Madagascar as, as this country is the only place in the world that has lemurs. So, 
Yes, nature and, and humans in, in Madagascar, I think, is, is far more interconnected than I would say my life is in the UK. But on the other hand, probably we understand more in the UK about the nature around us than people do in Madagascar. So there's there's that real kind of disconnect, I think, which is, you know, such a, a shame that, you know, because it is really special when you see something, even in the UK, you know, if, I, if I'm walking along and, and I see, you know, slow bushes, I, I immediately notice them because, well, well, I think, oh, that's where I'm going to get my slows for my slow gin from in November. <laughs> but I also notice, you know, if I go somewhere else and there are no slow bushes, because it's like, well, obviously, you know, they don't grow here because, well, maybe it's the soil, maybe it's the farming, maybe it's this. And, and you know, you start to think about that. Whereas, you know, that that's because I'm lucky enough to be able to get in a car and visit other places. So I think it's very difficult to to sort of have the same standards of, of sort of knowledge as as people do when they understand, you know, so much about how reliant they are on the land or the sea. Whereas us, we, you know, we have the benefit of all this kind of academic knowledge, but we've really lost that practical integrity with nature, I think. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up this kind of comparison between, that would be a really interesting comparative study to see, does the academic knowledge actually make you more equipped to help with conservation or does it because or is just knowing the place and have a sense mm -hmm. of place and a belonging in this place more and make you more inclined to protect it because it's yes it's the people now if they go to the supermarket if they were to see the cow behind they probably wouldn't buy a lot of the meat because it would create this mm -hmm. association with nature which yeah. is it's a really interesting kind of comparison to and it's something that probably would, would turn into a three four hour long discussion about where what is the best way or the most and there probably is no best way but what is what is the effects of this kind of connection but not necessarily academic and it's it's a really long and interesting discussion actually really really interesting it is and i think that you know and and you know maybe we'll talk about this a bit later when we talk maybe you know, maybe, well, well, as you say, we'll just go round in circles. Won't we? <laughs> but um, I think it's really interesting that the sort of um, the way that seed works, because we have um, national staff and we have international staff. And I think that that can form presumptions in people's minds a little bit about how the internationals and the nationals work together until you really get to know seed and, and how we work. And it's kind of exactly what you're talking about because the the national staff and you know the, the vast vast majority of of our national staff come from the area where we work you know probably about you know 95 percent so you know they they have chosen to stay in the the area so the region of Anoush and work for a charity that gives back to that area. Now, whether that's in community health or in education or, or in conservation, they have made a decision to stay in that area because they want to promote that area. So in this case, conservation. But, you know, to do that effectively on an international stage, you really need this, this um, academic knowledge and academic rigor brought in. So we 
our research team is comprised of international and national staff and they kind of work absolutely hand in hand to the best of their abilities because you know if you've got an international staff member who's you know worked in academia worked in other places of the world knows how to put forward methodologies that's going to be their skill set but there is no way you can just lift that from an academic textbook and place it in the middle of a forest in the noosh and presume it's going to work. So it's almost like then the national staff come in and say, well, that's all well and good and that's great. But to make it work here, you're going to need to do this, this, this and this and, and tweak it and adapt it. And then they go out in the field and, and do the research together. And I think by doing it, you get the best of those two worlds, but they absolutely have to work hand in hand and balanced because the minute, you know, one of them out tips the other, you, you get something that's not really going to work very well, whether that's for the international community or actually for, for the best of those forests and the conservation of those forests and the biodiversity within them. So it's really interesting, I think, how kind of Seed's taken that argument and kind of works with it on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. That's really, really interesting, actually. And I think that's whenever I've, I've always found that whenever I'm working personally, I always, we always get the best result when there's two people who have different experiences, maybe they, maybe there's clashing ideas, maybe, but if they can find a resolution and this middle ground or just, it, it's always the most constructive and it's interesting. And it's, I think a really positive way to do it. Um, and I thought it was interesting looking into, I was looking, doing some research before and looking at the kind of two teams pages of kind of the Madagascar staff and the uh, international staff. And it was equally sized, kind of size-ish teams. And I think a lot of places would have maybe, oh, you're the the consultant for this country and just have maybe one person based or maybe one. So it's good that it's kind of this, both large full teams, not just one person standing. Actually, I don't think this will work. It's, a, it's an interesting, <laughs> uh, it's a good kind of balance, it seems. Um, really, really interesting way of, of working. And I think that was a an excellent segue because we've brought it back to kind of seed and the, and the work that, that you do. Uh, and we kind of touched on on these ideas at the at the start of um, you mentioned some of the different projects that you worked on and looking on the website, the kind of five main issues just to recap them for people. If they can't remember from the start, we kind of had community health, education, infrastructure, sustainable livelihoods, water sanitation and hygiene, and also then the environmental conservation aspect as well. Now, that is a lot of different avenues and kind of even within those five avenues, there's several projects within each of them. So I wondered if there was one that we could touch on that, that particularly spoke to you. Is there something you've been working on recently of the five that kind of is is the project that's on your mind at the moment? Um, I always think my job's obviously everyone thinks their job's the best in the world, but I think my job's <laughs> the best in the world because um, I get to work with staff across the whole organisation. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I get to work through all of those programs, which is, you know, really wonderful because, you know, I can be sort of in a uh, sort of um, a program or, or a meeting talking about, you know, how to bring water to village communities and then go straight from that to looking at, well, what, how are we practically going to do the reforestation work to, to make corridors to join forest fragments for lemurs? And then, you know, all the way over to, you know, school building. 
so it, it's just for me a just wonderful opportunity to see how all of this is so integrated and it has to be integrated because it's got to be really focused in on what that community wants and what its priorities are at that particular moment in time and you know it, it's no good us presuming that clean water for example is that community's um, priority when actually it, it might be a health center or you know it might be a school so we you, you have to work across a whole range of opportunities and really listen to communities because if you get it wrong no one is going to spend their time and energy from a community putting that into a community into a project that is just not their priority um, so I think to pick one would be difficult, but I, I, I guess one of the, the ones that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and it, it's one of the ones that brought me to SEED, is, is kind of their school building program, because I think it's it's really interesting um, the way that SEED are moving with school building, because, you know, when we started, it, it was about building schools in rural villages because children, you know, they were having to walk kilometres and kilometres each day to go to school. Um, and then when they got there, you know, the classrooms weren't great. They had leaky roofs. They had no benches. So they were sitting in puddles on the floor. They had no teachers. Um, so even getting an education was was really, really difficult. So SEED started um, building schools probably about 2006. Um, and very quickly, we also then started to build toilets um, for schools. And I think that's quite a shock for people as well. <laughs> people think about primary school with, you know, no water and no toilets. I mean, if you can just imagine what that must look like. Um, so we started to build um, toilets and we started to put in water infrastructure as well. And a couple of years ago, we, we sort of reviewed all of our school building because what we realised was we were we were building really great schools, you know, no doubt about it, really good schools, good toilet facilities, good water. It was all great. But ultimately, you know, when when we thought about SEED's impact to education, you know, 20, 30 years in the future, the big question was, will we have had the impact that we want to have? And we kind of decided, no, <laughs> we wouldn't. <laughs> um, because there were so many other challenges that just building schools wasn't going to address. So, you know, the challenges of teacher retention in these very, very rural areas with teachers being, you know, they're, they're not the best paid workers. So they were having to do farming or a second income, which then meant they weren't in school so much. We were still, although we were building, you know, toilets, we, we weren't catering so much for the girls so that when the girls were having their periods at school, they weren't able to stay at school because there was nowhere to change. Um, we were having, you know, all sorts of issues as well with um, girls again, mainly dropping out because of um, early marriages. So we had a look at all of this and, you know, SEED 
we're small and we can't fix all the challenges that, that people face. So we decided to have a look at all the challenges, pick the ones we could face and then try and work with partners or do some advocacy work um, around all those that, that we couldn't do. So now we're looking at, for example, teacher retention. When we build a school now, we're also building a teacher's house so that the teacher's got somewhere to live on site that's permanent. You know, and we find that, you know, they'll they'll do then their garden or their farming around there and it keeps them then teaching in that place for more hours of the school week. Um, we've started building menstrual hygiene management facilities for the girls and, and doing sort of training in the schools in the hope that, you know, over the next couple of years, though, those girls are going to be able to keep going to school and not missing out, you know, for a week every month of their education and, and falling behind. We've, we've kind of revamped how we put water into schools. So, you know, the, the wells were a bit problematic. So now we're looking at, at rainwater harvesting and, and putting rainwater harvesting into schools. And we, we're just about to also start our, our first, we're trying to get to kind of reduce our um, emissions. So looking at a carbon neutral school and looking at doing some like a little reforest or a forestry plantation so that the school can use that um, for sort of wood and fruit um, and you know four or five years into the future when it when some of that's cut they can also have the income to, to bring back into the schools as well and to make it a community resource so out of this kind of school building it's really nice to see seed you know being realistic about are you really going to have an impact in 30 years time? And if the answer is no, what do you need to change now to get the impact that you're looking for? So I think school building has been something that, you know, we've we've really looked at and we've looked at a lot of our other work as well. But I think just, you know, having lots and lots of different things really inputting to that and having this holistic response again is going to hopefully not only increase you know for the children now the difference about having a good school in their village but in in years and years and years to come the impact's going to be a lot greater because we're going to be giving those extra resources and, and that extra capacity to kids as well that's absolutely incredible i think what was on my mind kind of while you were talking about that and what i was thinking about is that in a lot of ways i think if you were just to compare to the United Kingdom again, since that's what we've been using, if you were to kind of think about the UK school system, the things that you're doing kind of as a charity working are almost more holistic and progressive mm -hmm. than a lot of the education policy that you would see in a country that likes to think of itself as very, oh, we're very forward thinking, we're very educated, we're very developed in terms of education in this. So this kind of holistic ideas, they sound almost like things that should everybody should be doing never mind when you're a charity going in and building this school you every education department in every government around the world should be looking at things like that and going actually that's not a that's not a bad idea we should think about that ourselves it's really interesting and i think yes creating this kind of holistic taking this holistic approach is really interesting and not just thinking in the kind of short term of oh we've built the school that's the that's the tick it's the well what is the effect of the school what is the long term actual benefits of that and that's really really interesting um 
and I, I kind of I wanted to ask and similarly that sounds like a, a huge success so far uh, and I don't know it's one of those things you I suppose you won't know how successful it's been until till later down the line um but I, w I wanted to ask about the successes of kind of your before we get on to the the food um kind of crisis topic I wanted to ask about your kind of existing projects and the successes like this previous success that we've talked about are, are there any other kind of headline successes that come to mind when you think about your work and the things that you've been doing over the the last few months or years um oh, so many so many um, and and it's really from those little successes mm -hmm. all the way to 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 the very big ones um you know i, I think it's really and people always ask me from the team oh you know what's your favorite project and you know what's yeah. the best and and I honestly can't answer but I think I go back to a time maybe I went on a on a field trip a few years ago um and it was it was with um the managing director of seed who who comes from a conservation background and actually our um, executive conservation director as well and we went to see um some a bat roost um which I'd, I'd never seen before and it just totally blew my mind you know you had these massive flying foxes flying over an, an area of pristine literal forest which was like just magical and centuries old and the really sad thing is that they were only a few bats there and and the people you know from our team that we were with were saying yeah that they're, they're really decreasing it's you know people coming in for logging bats don't like a lot of disturbance <laughs> you know they're very quiet creatures so you know we don't know for how long we're going to have this bat roost and i remember you know the three of us saying we, we've got to do something about this and you know we were talking to um, you know our local staff and saying you know what are the problems what do you think we could do about it what would need to be done about it and from that we started um a project to really work with the community to conserve the bat roost mm -hmm. and you know there, there was a number of different ways we could do it but, you know, one of the things that we did was to work with them on an exclusion zone around these three very tall trees. Um, and, you know, we went in and thinking, God, you know, in an ideal world, we would have it, you know, this big and it would be in this place. And I can remember, you know, the, the guys coming back from the bush and saying, you know, how did it go? Did the, did the community, you know, because there's always a chance the community are going to say, well, actually, no you know we need that forest and no you know at the moment bats are at the bottom of our priorities so no and they said it was absolutely brilliant the community was so behind it they actually doubled the size of the ideal area we would have wanted to exclude and and they've made it double the size and not only that but they started doing um in, in Madagascar, it's called Adina, but it is basically a local law that started to stipulate, you know, what you were allowed to take from that part of the forest, what you were not allowed to take, the fact that you couldn't touch these trees or, or, or go within, you know, a certain meterage of the trees and just the importance of the bats. And it was quite a moment to, to, to kind of, you know, have that coming together of, again, you know, we were talking about before this international sort of knowledge about how precious these beautiful creatures are 
and the local community saying, yeah, we know, and this is what we want to work with you to do about it. And it was it was brilliant. You know, we, we got the exclusion zone, we got the, 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 the DINA all passed with them. You know, then unfortunately, you know, funding ran out for a bit and, you know, the loggers came back in and, and the bats disappeared off as well for a while, which was a little bit disconcerting. But, you know, they came back about six months ago and, you know, through our bat counts that we're doing each month, we, we can see them increasing and increasing and increasing. And, and it, on Friday, a researcher who'd been out to the bush, you know, sent us all through, you know, about 50 pictures of these bats and, and you can see them they're they're all back and you think what an amazing achievement you know and, and it's not seed we we facilitated that but what an amazing achievement for that community in these times to be prioritizing the conservation of those flying foxes and it, it's just you know stories like that all the time that bring you up short that make you think what an absolutely amazing community that mm -hmm. we work with you know yeah i guess that's the word or the, the words that kind of the buzzwords for this whole episode seem to be kind of community and holism and this kind of this kind of perfect harmony between nature and and man and then also the um teams working well together and all these kind of things kind of working in tandem really really nicely and really well um and I appreciate you bringing up the bat example given we're mainly focused on conservation stories it's a really good example and I was really interested actually it's amazing nature's ability to to recover and to kind of yes heal mm. it, it, it's not necessarily that you have to go in and do much you just have to take the loggers away and then it will it'll naturally just do its own thing. I think that's a really interesting and perfect example of how nature, you don't always have to, something I learned at uni actually, that has always stuck with me is the kind of, well, there's option A, option B, and then the third option is always, what happens if you do nothing? What if you just mm -hmm. take yourselves away and let nature do what nature needs to do? And, um, and it, this is a perfect example of that, of where it will recover if you just let it be. Yeah. Um, and also a perfect example of how I don't think earlier I used the kind of when I, I asked the question, I phrased it as these two spheres. How do they work together? And in some places, perhaps it certainly is two spheres of people and nature. But this seems to be this nice one whole sphere of everything works well together and they're happy to give the bats their space. It's it's really interesting. And I guess you kind of touched on it there when you were saying about especially at this time, uh, this time for people who are maybe listening in a couple of years time when you're, they're out on walks and doing everything they could maybe on a train or a plane on holiday whatever you're doing uh, <laughs> right now this is being recorded uh, during of course the pandemic um, and I wanted to ask actually what the effects of that on on your work had been yeah, yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that um I mean I, I think like most of the world it huge it, the world's completely changed I, I you know it's been challenging it's been difficult for for everyone and i think each country and well each person you know we've all had our own personal challenges um during the pandemic as well um for, for madagascar it's strange really because i would say the impact on seed and its work has been huge um despite the fact that, that Madagascar has really, really low um, reported rates of, of COVID. Mm -hmm. 
and we we certainly haven't seen you know the the devastation that that covid's wrecked in in other parts of the world on on people's health um so i you know madagascar's um and you know unfortunately you know we we have had people who have who have died because of covid but but probably under a thousand um reported covid deaths which you know when you compare it to other countries is is remarkable um but as I say, the, the impact on the organisation and, and therefore the work that we're doing is, is, has been absolutely huge. So I, I think, you know, the, the first impact that we saw was back in sort of March, April last year, when the whole of our international team, apart from three people, were actually evacuated from Madagascar. So we went from this charity that, you know, the all of our staff, you know, we, we work in teams, they're made up of nationals and internationals. And suddenly we lost a third of our, our team on the ground as the as the international team sort of had to go back to their home countries. And this had a massive impact because we, the, the international staff, you know, they're often very young professionals. They were going from, you know, a relatively independent life, living in southern Madagascar. And they returned home to, to, to live with parents. They were working for, you know, very little money because they were either volunteering or, or on very local stipends. They were working from parents' kitchen tables. They were working from bedrooms. You know, I still see staff on, on Zoom when, when we have our one-to-ones who, you know, they, they'll do it from, from their bedrooms. And that's where they've been for the past kind of 16, 17 months. We had time zones to contend with as well. We suddenly had staff who didn't cross over with Madagascar at all. You know, I, I was meeting staff at sort of six o'clock in the morning because they were based in New Zealand or five, six o'clock at night because they were based in the UK or Canada. So really, really difficult time for international staff at the same time that national staff were, were still in Madagascar. And, you know, they had huge pressures um, put on them. You know, I think huge challenges because they didn't know what was coming to Madagascar. The health service is very underdeveloped. So, you know, they were standing in the, this, this huge wave of a pandemic that they could see hitting the other world. And, and you know, the, the deaths that that was causing in, you know, at that stage, mainly sort of Europe and the UK where, where they knew staff from. And, and we just didn't know what was going to happen to Madagascar. So really, really difficult time for them psychologically. But also, you know, we would listen to the president's address on the radio on a Sunday night to find out whether our office could open the next morning. So you, you didn't know whether we were going to open, whether we were going to be closed, whether we were going to be working for a few hours or not at all, whether your, you know, our, our borders, the, the region borders closed, so whether you were going to be able to get staff across borders, you know, whether you could even go sort of the 30 kilometres up to our field sites, because taxi bruises also stopped at one point and you weren't allowed to move around. So you never knew what you were coming into, so it was taking an awful lot of time really thinking through with staff well how are you going to be safe this week you know because it wasn't only about what the government was saying it was about how did staff feel about coming into work and and how could we 
sort of manage that so they were as a start as, as safe as possible so we put in like hand washing stations got in sanitizers we did health risk assessments for going to the bush but we also found that you know the biggest problem for us is, is staff so wanted to come in and, and work and wanted to go to the sites you know because they'd worked with these communities for 20 years and it, it was feeling like abandoning them so how to keep staff safe as well so it was really really difficult times we we kept our projects going as best that we could and in fact all of our projects you know we we had to stop some activities but all of our projects kept going but at the same time we were looking at okay we've got you know all these terrific problems but we need to start new projects as well because you know we want to be part of supporting communities in terms of protecting them against COVID-19. So we also started to new projects, one with UNICEF around um, working in some of the bigger health facilities and marketplaces and council offices doing disinfectant and you know doing a lot of training all the way over to a smaller one with the British Embassy in Madagascar where we worked in in 10 rural health clinics and basically put in hand washing stations, soap and worked with the staff there and about really good healthcare messages about protecting the staff and the patients and then did radio slots to encourage people still to come in and access those clinics. So as well as all these, these difficulties and problems, we were starting new projects and then we had, you know, the, the funding cuts internationally as funders suspended their funding. And then as they moved to, towards opening up, we saw a lot of funding diverted into to kind of COVID-19 and health and away from things like conservation. So we were dealing with all of these problems really right across the organisation from, you know, having our staff split to keeping other staff safe to developing new projects whilst in, in, in the times of kind of funding cuts and not really knowing, you know, where where some of our funding was going to come from in three or four months time. Mm -hmm. That's it must have been the most stressful experience that's especially in a role where you're overseeing when you're sat in the position where you see all of the projects and you see oh well having to make decisions about where then the remaining funds go where how you prioritize as you say a team because you can't just say well you're in New Zealand so that doesn't work for us time-wise anymore you're no. you're gone like that, that's it would be unfair because of the so it's a real like I, I can't even begin to imagine how much of a kind of stress that would be. Um, are there people, obviously now the world is starting to open back up a, a little bit in certain places and in certain aspects. What is the situation now? Have people been able to come back or is it still kind of the same now? No, it's um, Madagascar still um, closed its borders. We we closed borders on, I think it was the 24th of March um, last year. And really the borders have never reopened. Um, we had a, a plane in, in one week um, or, or once a week up to one of the tourist islands in the north um, for a couple of months, but then that um, stopped. And we've also had, um, now we have one, one plane into the capital um, a week, but the plane, you know, it's not a tourist plane, it, it's for, you know, people who are coming in to, to support um, 
sort of diplomats returning Malagash. So it's it's not possible to actually return. So we still have, you know, all of these people working all across the world. You know, we we we're watching, you know, newspapers, listening to the radio, and looking at, you know, not only when Madagascar opens its borders, but as you know, you know. We're seeing rising case numbers now all, all, all over the world. So even if Madagascar opens its borders, you know, there's there's massive questions about, well, what's going to happen in two weeks in, in countries around the world? Will, will they still be able to go? And, you know, if we are in Madagascar, you know, SEED's always had a policy of, you know, we, we have to be able to get people out if they need it. Would we be able to get people out with only one flight a week from the capital? And, and you know, at the moment, the answer is no. So, I mean, we're really hoping that Madagascar does reopen its borders soon and that cases across the world are managed soon. And, you know, both of those planets align and we keep crossing our fingers that at that point there's going to be a window for us to return to Madagascar. That's, yeah, it's... Fingers, fingers, very much everything crossed because it's, it's, yeah, and especially with the way that vaccines and all this has been distributed, mm -hmm. it, it's very, uh, it's unfair to expect everybody to all of a sudden be, oh, okay, yeah, come on back, you're all, it doesn't, it, yeah, it just, the all of these cogs turning don't seem to line up exactly, exactly right, um, and then, I guess while we're on a, a tricky topic. On top of that, when you're already in a, a difficult situation, then you have, um, of course, this ongoing food crisis, which, as we've mentioned, has not been Madagascar has not been in the news. And a lot of people, I don't think, seem to know about this. I, it caught me off guard a little bit when I first heard about it. And it already seems to be so bad and have been going on for so long. When I heard it, it was kind of a how has how has no one been talking about this? So. We touched on it a little bit in our, our last episode, but now we have you here to to go into it in proper detail uh, and tell us uh, about it and what people can can do to support um, your work there. I, I guess, first of all, because people don't seem to know, could you kind of give us a little introduction to what is currently happening in, in Madagascar? Yeah, um, I mean, the current food crisis is really concentrated on the south of the island. And, and I think the south has always had its its difficult times with um, water. Um, much of it is, is kind of desert, really. There's not a lot else there apart from sand. Um, but I think that, that over recent years, it's been gradually getting a lot worse. So we're currently, I think it's the fifth year out of the last six, there's been drought in the south of Madagascar, and it's currently the worst drought since 1981. So, you know, e even though it's had its problems, we're seeing something that is very, very, very different to the norm um, now. And, you know, climate change is, is obviously playing its part in that. And it's said that we're the only country in the world now where the famine is is caused by climate change um, and not, you know, um, armed disasters and, and sort of fighting and conflict in that way. So it's very much um, based on, on climate change. So we've got um, an exceptionally 
poor population who don't have a lot of resilience to climate change and climate shocks. We've got the worst drought um, for 40 years. And in amongst that as well, we've also got, you know, some of the problems we've already been talking about with, with COVID-19 as well and, and the economic problems um, particularly that that brought. So probably around August, September time last year when we we'd sort of looked at the immediate needs of, of COVID and, and what we were going to do about that, we turned our attention to um, the famine in the South. And, and one of the ways that we knew that it was so much worse this year is because it was actually coming into the niche and the areas where we worked. And that's very, very unusual. We could also see that, you know, it was it was very bad at that particular time. But, you know, all of the bigger agencies were predicting worse to come. And certainly when we knew sort of you know, if, if you've got drought and no water and you haven't been able to plant your seeds because the area is so dry and there's no rain to then make those seeds grow, what you're actually looking at is in four months time, you're, you're going to have failed harvests as well. Mm -hmm. So you've got this, um, you've got drought, you've got famine, but you know it's going to get worse because usually you, you would have these periods of two or three months, which is a lean season when your crops are growing and, and there's nothing to be harvested. But there wasn't an end to it. There was no harvest. Mm -hmm. And with no harvest, then you were then looking at, well, where's all the seeds going to come from? to plant for the next harvest. So you could see the South getting into this real cycle of just having no food and it becoming worse and worse. And we began to see that with, you know, people would pick, for example, their cassava early because there was nothing to eat. So rather than let it grow into the big tubers, they were harvesting it early because they needed food and being able to sell it at market. So in the main town of Fort Dauphin, people were saying, actually, cassava, which is you know a really basic crop, has doubled in price. And what you're getting is tiny, tiny tubers of it. Mm -hmm. So we knew that, that there was going to be real problems. Mm -hmm. But we also, you know, again, we're, we're pretty realistic about what seed can do and, and kind of what seed can't do. And we knew that this growing crisis was, was going to be something totally unprecedented um, that we had seen. And we then had to make some pretty hard decisions about, OK, what what is seed going to do? You know, we, we're going to have limited capacity in terms of our staff and our ability to respond. But we're also going to have very, very limited funds because we're a development NGO, you know, we don't do food distribution. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really a, a history with us of, of doing it and having funding for it. So what we decided to do was to really look at our heartland and where we had been working with the communities around the, the literal forest for, for 20 years and to say at this particular point in time, we don't want to turn our back on those communities that we've been working with for so long. And also as development NGO, we, we've always looked long term. So we've never really sort of done the, you know, 
quick fix and then move on out of a community. And consequently, we've built up really good relationships with the healthcare centres because, you know, for the COVID-19 response, we worked with healthcare centres. So we trained healthcare workers to respond um, rather than respond ourselves. So we decided to use that network and to focus on seven healthcare centres that most of whom we'd already been working with and to really focus our efforts then on the catchment area. So it was 41 villages that fed into those seven healthcare centres and to really target all children with malnutrition. So something that took me a little bit of time to really get my head around is is describing children as moderately acutely malnourished um, because you know this is these are children that are diagnosed with malnutrition you know it, it's going to cause problems it's going to cause stunting they're very very thin they're very weak but then you have this second category of severely acutely malnourished children which means that you know they are so malnourished that they're in danger of, of developing life-threatening complications. And we decided as an organization that we wanted to target all children who were diagnosed malnourished, whether they were moderately or whether they were severe, you know, by, by most of our definitions, they were malnourished and needed our support. So we decided to work with those and again something that we were talking about earlier is is this brilliant combination of um kind of academic literature and theoretical literature and practical on the ground knowledge so when we sat down as as a team and said okay you know what do the who guidelines say that we need to do our local staff said yes but we also need to really give food to families because if you just give food to children, then families are, are likely to share that food, you know, even the little sachets that they get. Um, and what about the brothers and sisters of those children? And what about, you know, the culture in Madagascar is so strong that, you know, out of a family, it, it's the elderly that you always look after first. You would never feed a child before feeding, you know, the most elderly person in your family. So the local staff um, and, and international staff got together, pulled all their ideas and we, we came up with this. OK, this is what we're going to do. We're going to produce, we, we're going to work with the malnourished children and we're going to give them sachets. But we're also going to work with the families of all malnourished children and provide them with unprepared food. So we they decided rice, um, beans and oil so that they had a food package of which they could feed the family and ultimately that would protect the child. Mm -hmm. So we worked um, across those seven healthcare centres um, and we just finished our first, well we've just finished about a month ago, our first 60 day distribution mm -hmm. um, and it was just amazing when you know that the team came back and and said you know all of the sam children you know who had really bad complications they they're all well now 
you know, the, the children that had um, moderate and severely malnourished, it, it was pretty much, you know, I think it was um, 97 percent within the moderate malnourished and 99 percent within the severely malnourished are all recovered. They're not they're not malnourished. Some of the severely malnourished, you know, we think did fall back to being moderately, but that was such a big step on the way to being recovered. So the team, you know, under really, really difficult, you know, who would have ever thought that a development agency would have been doing food distribution in the time of a pandemic? You know, the most awful situations where you'd have from one particular health clinic, there was over um, 200 severely um, malnourished children coming in. But the government guidelines quite rightly were you couldn't have more than 50 people at one time so we had to say rather than go in and do one food distribution we're actually going to spread it across four days and you know you'd go in every single day I mean I, I don't think the team slept for weeks because you know what we originally thought just didn't work out we had we had flooding so that people couldn't get there for a few days and then they'd have to double up again we had you know migration from some of the areas that were more susceptible and we're feeling the effects of, of the famine more coming into our areas and suddenly the numbers would increase. You know, in amongst a time when, you know, I, I was having conversations with staff to say, how do you feel about doing food distribution? Do you feel safe? Mm -hmm. Do you feel protected from COVID-19? Because we were doing this when the second wave hit Madagascar. So, you know, a really, really difficult situation and, and to see those children now recovering is, is just absolutely amazing. But, you know, we're aware 41 villages out of the whole of the south of Madagascar, you know, it, it's the tip of the iceberg. But I feel that we've done what we could, you know, we were realistic in what SEED can achieve and, and, and we achieved it for those children. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic, actually. And it's 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 always good to have, even though it's been a struggle and it's been this kind of journey and it is, there's still a journey to go. It's good that you have these numbers now to know mm. what we're doing is, is working and is effective. And it's that little bit of light that you need to keep pushing forward in a exceptionally dark time. It's yeah, it's it must have been. Yeah, I when I, I said I couldn't imagine what it was like when we were talking about the COVID situation and then we get even more complicated. And I think just to rehack, because I, I was looking at some articles before I came on and it was, yes, the, the there are four countries in the world that the World Food Programme considers to be phase five, which is the most, the worst stage of, of famine uh, you can have. Ethiopia, South Sudan, Yemen and Madagascar. And I would say of all of them, Madagascar is the one that has had least attention and it may that's it's an interesting discussion there because the rest of them are conflict focused and mm -hmm. Madagascar is climate so is that something to do with it is it what is the discussion that needs to be had around why is this not getting as much attention but for it to be up there with those countries which I think as soon as people if people were to try and guess the the four those three come instantly to mind and they just wouldn't get that last one is is shocking and then yes to hear that there is this this little bit of good news and the Yes, there's uh, 138 children that you treated with a severe acute malnutrition, 
137 recovered, and of the 515 children with MAM, MEM, uh, 504 recovered. And it's it's th- those success rates are. I I want I, if if I could applaud without ruining the audio, that's a good. That's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's it's incredible. Um, and yes, I want that's kind of. I know you said you'd met the 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 goals that you'd set out to to do and those success rates. What is the plan going forward? I guess because obviously that's that's not over. And if it's happened these years going on and on and on, uh, I wondered what the the thought was was going forward with that type of program. Yeah, I mean two two things really. And I think the first is to say yeah the 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 crisis by a long way isn't over. And and this was brought home to us um, only last week when we got the figures from the Ministry of Health because they they'd been out to to once again sort of assess the the villages that we worked in, and it was it was it was kind of very sobering because the figures that they found is that you know we were working with one cohort of children. And, and that's great, and, and they're recovered, and, and it's brilliant. But whilst we were working with those, another cohort of children, you know, were, were slowly slipping from being okay and into malnourishment. So we've just got the figures back across um, those seven health centres that we were working in, and we've got another 320 children now with um, moderate acute malnutrition. Um, and 16 more with severe acute malnutrition. So we know that there's still such a need, even in those communities that we were working with. And my guess is, you know, by the time we start the next round, and and we made the decision last week that we did want to continue um, with these communities, that those numbers will have risen again. Um, so even in those those communities, you know, we, we we're not protecting and providing for for everyone that needs our help. And as well as as those children, you know, we're we're so keen to even move into one other health care centre because the health care centres to to the sort of south of Fort Dauphin is 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 where you start to enter, you know, the the kind of more red zone, which is, you know, people who have, they've already sold all their household goods, you know, they've got nothing else to sell, they have nothing. But yet, there's just not enough funding coming in to support them. So, so Seed's really keen to, to keep the, the children in those 41 villages safe from malnutrition while just extending down into just one other health care setting and, and, and to really do the same for those people there because there's just not the amount of funding that is coming into Madagascar that it needs. So, that, you know, the 41 villages we're working in, there is no other support um, for people there. A little bit further south, the World Food Programme are working, but they, you know, they they just don't have the funding to to work with everyone who needs it. So we're keen to extend our food distribution, and 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 I think that the crisis will go on way beyond this year because of the impact of those failed harvests. You know, we, we're going to have a failed harvest um towards the end of the year and and you know that means it's going to then encroach into next year but as well as as doing that you know i think that 
ultimately for all of the, the kind of more emergency work we've been doing with COVID and with food distribution is, you know, Seed's very much still a development NGO. And we've also been looking at, okay, what, what are kind of long-term climate mitigation strategies that, that maybe we can start to develop? So as, as well as some of the work we've, we've been doing for a number of years around sort of water in, in, in sort of schools and healthcare settings, having a look at um, particularly around food, and, and one of the things that, that we trialled for a few months at the beginning of the year was edible insects. So we started a, a pilot on edible insects because there are edible insects um, in the places where we work. You know, you, you can get the, the seed for the host plant and, and that's a bean, which is absolutely great again for food, but it's also really, really good for, for soil. So we did a three month pilot on um, beans and the edible insects it went down really, really, really well. So we're in the process now of applying for funding to try to extend that project because edible insects are something that could be, you know, one of the answers to food insecurity in the South. And it's something that people can grow, they can do themselves without seeds intervention at all. Um, and that to me seems like a really good way to start looking at, at sort of climate change and, and some of the many things that we need to be doing to support people in the South. That's really, really interesting. And it's, again, looking at the, even in this, that was a short term, uh, kind of response is turning into a longer term kind of <laughs> looking for the longer term solutions to these things um, and I guess it leads me kind of a couple of things you said there leads me nicely into my my final question which is what can can people do and I guess of course there's the classic kind of watch your carbon footprint watch whatever because mm -hmm. these things that while it may seem little to you at somewhere else they're having serious impact and even even in the places where people liked to think it was a faraway issue. If we look at Australia and the US, they seem to constantly be on fire. Uh, and certainly in Scotland, it feels it feels like we're on fire today. It, this does not <laughs> feel like a classic Scottish summer for anyone at home. Anyone listening in a hot country, 24, 25 degrees would probably sound great, but or not unusual. But Scotland, this is a it's an odd thing to see the way the world is changing and all these things shifting. So watching your climate change impact but is there anything else that that they can someone listening could do to to help you in in your work yeah i think i mean obviously as you say i think again we you know we were talking at the very beginning about people being removed from nature i think this is another classic example that you know we're so far removed and and to be fair you know it suits us to be removed we we wouldn't want to think that you know our actions today in a house in the uk are actually going to cause someone's illness and maybe ultimately their death somewhere else in the world but that is the hard reality and, and we need to join up the dots between our own personal responsibility and, and what we can do to safeguard people's lives, no matter where in the world they are. So absolutely climate change and, and your climate, you know, carbon footprint. I think as well, obviously, you know, we rely on, on people's donations and funding coming in. You know, if, if you can fund even, you know, 
the fiver that you would have gone out for coffee with this morning, you know, goes a long, long way in Madagascar. So, you know, do you think about funding and, and how you can help and support people like Seed to support in the south of Madagascar? But I also think that, you know, very much what you were saying earlier, Madagascar is such an unknown place absolute classic those four places that you mentioned that you know have famine at the moment and no one would ever consider those green forests that you see David Attenborough wandering around would be in the midst of one of the world's worst famines at the moment and I think it is about sharing that you know seed are very very active on Facebook Instagram Twitter Reddit do go and have a look at our pages follow our pages like everything you possibly can and share it because the more people that understand and can see the impact and, and the challenges and the suffering in South Madagascar the easier it's going to be for us to talk about it to an audience that, that understands and, and, and that sees that rather than you know our, our first thing being to say no, Madagascar is actually a real country. It's not just a Disney film um, or it's not just forests. You know, it has people that are facing challenges. So, you know, really, I, I think our Facebook and Instagram are absolutely great, full of beautiful pictures, imagery, really good project summaries about what we're all doing. Go and like those, share those. You know, all of that is, is totally free. You know, if you've got a birthday coming up, Facebook fundraisers at the moment are keeping so much of our work going because once people understand they do want to, to donate and they want to have those opportunities. So, you know, tell them about it, give them an opportunity to, to donate, but give them an opportunity to talk about Madagascar. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really ho hopeful, fantastic piece of advice, I think. And I can... I follow all of the pages and I have to say that even if you're just a fan of photography and sharing those types of things and looking at those types <laughs> of things, it's fantastic. It's the photographs are the type of pictures. And I don't know if you ever get this, but when you look at them, you think if I was to see that in real life, it wouldn't look as good as it does in this picture. Oh, it's no. That, they're fanta there's fantastic, <laughs> like beautiful, incredible things. Um, so it is it, they're really everything is worth having a follow reading the posts, thinking about the posts and just talking to people. And I think that's the seems to be my conclusion at the end of every episode is just talk to people about whatever we've talked about. But it does so much good to go out there, spare change, whatever it is you have, give it to a charity, do the work and then just talk to somebody um, about it as well. And hopefully then they will that will spiral on. And so, yes, I guess that was all of the, the questions I, I had for you today. And I, I think um, we've plugged all the social media and things which is is good and i'll put the links to everything that people need to find uh, all of the things down in the description i'll put links to the um donation link and the all the facebook pages and things so people can it, it's all there so it's easy people listening you have no excuse not to go and do these things and so yeah all i kind of have to say now is thank you so so much lisa for your your time today it's been really interesting enlightening um to to talk to you and i hope Yes, I hope you have enjoyed. Thank you very much. No, I, I, I'd like to say I always enjoy talking about Madagascar. And I know some of the, the topics we've covered today are difficult, but ultimately, you know, Madagascar is an absolutely wonderful place. And in the future, when it does open up, 
I would encourage anyone to go because those photographs may be beautiful, but when you see it in real <laughs> life, it is breathtaking. <laughs> uh, this is the pro everyone I interview. I've already promised that I'll fly to Namibia for the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, and then I'll be across, <laughs> come across, uh, and then I guess I'm off to Bangladesh as well. So it's I I mean I'm really racking well, up the travel bills, but I, I'm I'll I, I, yes, you can guarantee I will I will probably be there eventually. I, because, oh, do uh, do. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we are back. That brings us to the end of today's episode. As I said uh, at the end of the interview there, I cannot thank Lisa enough for her time. And I cannot thank you all enough for your time for listening as well. There is also a third person I should thank. And that is, of course, my wonderful friend Fatima, who helped set up this interview, who put me in contact with Lisa, um, who also works for Seed on their programs as well. And yes, she is a, a wonderful person who helped set this all up. And without her, it wouldn't have been able to take place. As Lisa said, it's really, really important that we all kind of have a think about these things, talk about these things, tell somebody you know, because news, uh, certainly in the UK, news stations are not doing a good job of covering this crisis. So go out, tell people about the, the crisis, about the bats, about the school programme, all this inspiring stuff that Seed do, and hopefully then you can encourage them to donate, look into it, and help do this amazing, amazing work. As I've said, all of the social media links and the donation links will be in the description for this episode. Head on down there, do what you can. I would be exceptionally, exceptionally grateful. On a slightly different note, uh, it is worth letting you all know that, of course, we do have a third season of our show coming up very soon, aside from this wonderful special that we've just put together for you all. So do make sure to follow us on your podcast streaming service of choice, whether that be Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. Uh, make sure to follow us on there uh, so you don't miss out on any of the episodes. You can also find us on social media at Pangolin Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all sorts of amazing places um, where we share photos, facts, fun things for you to think about, and all of, of course, the news about upcoming seasons of the show and things. So um, yes, I'll not reveal too much, but season three is coming together so nicely. I'm already kind of thinking about season four because season three is a lot, a lot of stuff has been put into it and we might have to spread it out even even further than I, I initially thought because there's so many people coming out and saying they want to to be involved and it's just it's fantastic it's great to see um and yes I hope you all enjoy listening to it when the time comes but uh, I'll leave you hanging on that one um and that's the important reason to follow us so you don't miss out so um thank you all once again so much for listening um, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Fatima. Thank you, 
everybody. Um, I will let you go now. Um, and yes, until next time. Thank you so 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 much for listening. Bye bye.